0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Raptors Weekly podcast. This is one of the installments that you and many people have come to know as the pull-up tray episode. It's kind of bi-weekly, it's kind of when we want to do it. I, we're this is two in a month. We're we're on I, the right track. I think so
1: surprisingly we've actually kept Hey man, of- yeah.
0: Yeah, we're there. And <laughs> of course, it, it it's a the the whole format is that I'm joined by a co-host, Trevon Heath. You may know him as Trey, listening to this podcast, and we're here to talk about basketball, mostly Raptors, then league-wide stuff at the end. Trey, how the hell are you, dude? I'm good. Um, it's been...
1: A... How am I doing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I need to know what You I'm haven't doing. been taking the time to ask yourself to look after yourself. You need people in your life, dude, who say, hey, how are you? Thanks.
1: Okay. Um doing good i've been watching a lot of basketball with a lot to say so i'm happy to be back
0: damn okay so wait wait footy you're watching the the world cup as well
1: i i'm not a uh, people are going to kill me keenan especially but i'm <laughs> i'm not a soccer fan but i i've been holding my my hand to my heart and watching canada we lost but it's been fun
0: okay i'm, I'm kind of the same way i am actually look at this though it's a kit right? Soccer Juventus. That's right. It's a Pogba kit. Big shout out to him. Uh, Anyway, people don't really give, they don't care about this (laughs) stuff. So we're going to talk about the Raptors. So in, in, in the biggest news, the Raptors have had everybody, anybody injured. Uh, But what we're going to talk about at the start of this is circling back to Nick nurse, maybe some of his philosophies on his, how he engages with players. We don't know about the intimate stuff, we do know, however, the way he speaks about them in the media, and he has a track record at this point of talking about players in sort of a, a callous way. Uh, we've seen it on several occasions, and uh, I just, before we dig into any specific thing, what are your thoughts on on the coach call-out, the, the cliche coach call-out
1: in call sports? Call-out culture. I think, I, I sort of just related to like everyday life. I don't think anyone wants to be necessarily single, though. Like, people have, like, an intrinsic need to want to do well and perform well, so you don't necessarily need to call people out. And I don't think it's worked, realistically. I know, like, with Boucher, it it kind of worked. But it was kind of good. Like, Nick Nurse called Pascal out in the bubble. That didn't change anything. If anything, it just probably made the situation worse. So, I don't know. For you, um, in past sports, has a coach ever called you out or made you – try harder by pushing you in front of the team. So, I I
0: would say that there's there's definitely I've had bad coaches yeah. and I've had good coaches. The best coaches and the sports I excelled at in most were the ones that didn't have the, you know, like washed up 40-year-old who wants to live vicariously through the kids who's like, you know, saying, you know, who's very into yelling and very into, you know, putting people down. Now, That's not nurse because he's coaching adults. Uh, In my adult life, I have not been coached. I've never, if somebody tried to coach me as an adult, I'd be like, (laughs) what the hell is going on? Many people who listen to this podcast will know who Zarrar is. Zarrar is my boss for all intents and purposes. Uh, Zarrar does not boss me around or coach me through stuff. We just collaborate, I would say. And I think collaboration is typically the way forward. But again, this is not the way that people like to view the coach player relationship, even though everybody is an adult in some cases, like Thaddeus young, who's what? 35 talking to Nick nurse, like they're closer in age than Thad is to Scotty, for example, or something like that. It's a, uh, it's kind of a black box coaching, but we know about it. And I'm curious. So the Boucher stuff, he, he said, Boucher hasn't been good. Boucher has been bad. The Gary stuff, he says, he relates it to deflections. And says, not getting enough. If he doesn't do that, (laughs) he doesn't fit in with us. Uh, Pascal Siakam openly called him out as well. Uh, They had a significant amount of friction leading to a suspension for Pascal for, I believe it was, conduct detrimental to the team. (laughs) We still, I'm waiting to hear what happened behind those closed doors. At some point, that story comes out. And uh, I'm very intrigued for that. But Uh, yeah I guess have you ever heard of it working before
1: like is there a famous example of it other than a movie I've I've never heard of a situation (laughs) where putting somebody down has really helped them I'm trying to think no like Boucher probably would be the only situation where like he actively played better like the following two weeks but I would say that there was like underlying things to show that he was already a positive on the court to be honest
0: that was kind of what I was wondering about, right, was that Boucher, a lot of people talk about that December 26th game, and Boucher also says that as well, and that's worth noting. But December 5th, if you look at the box score, and as somebody who watches every game and covers every game, yeah. that was really the line of demarcation. So what, what would the term be? Uh, revisionist history or yeah. something like that. And so I've always wondered about that. And and even Chris in talking about that was like, oh, yeah, I had family members who said they didn't enjoy watching the the boxing day game and all that kind of stuff. So I've always wondered, I'd really like, you know, you get to do the truth serum. You ask a player, hey, did this help or did did something happen on the court that allowed you to play better? Uh, perhaps it was something else. So guys deal with stuff all the time. You know, ups and downs are very common for NBA players, I guess. I, I never, and this is also on my end of things, I, I talked about this with Lewis, but I never want to attribute stuff to coaching. Like, I, I really, I hate the idea, even as somebody who, you know, I like I like all the set breakdowns, I like all the plays, I like all the intricacies of that. But as far as a player playing good, if you try and tell me that it was anybody's doing besides that players, I just out of hand, I'm like, no, I don't want to hear it, which is maybe a little bit too, I guess, uh, I'm too much on the player side
1: maybe, but I'm curious where you stand with that too. I think I would say probably like at the core I stand where you are. Like I don't think Steve Kerr turned Steph Curry into the greatest shooter of all time and one of the 10 best players we've ever seen. I think he improved actively. He got better and got healthy, to be honest, and improved. Like there's situations like that where there's a bit of coincidence. I would say where coaching has the biggest influence is that they – increase your your probably your floor of your team like the raptors they have a scheme in place where they're going to create lots of turnovers they're going to get in transition and puts them in active positions where it strengthens their team and their talent guys like delano for example who excels in transition those type of players benefit from his coaching but i don't think um a Hezy pull up was created because of nick nurse and him screaming
0: that's uh, I'm sure Harrison Barnes probably coaching seems like a really big deal to him because when Mark Jackson left and he's like nobody's saying I'm possessed by a demon anymore for him, that's a really big deal. Uh, you talked about having a scheme in place, and that kind of re- that relates to identity, to culture, things that are very hard to craft at the NBA level. I actually wrote about it today in that in that OG piece. If anybody wants to go to RaptorsRepublic.com and read it. But this kind of pulls in this idea of how the Raptors are now four and five without Pascal, nine games with them, nine games without them, five and four, four and five. Although uh, I would say that uh, the teams in the four and five were quite a bit easier to play than the the five and four. And with that culture, with the, with the scheme, with everything instilled, what have you liked seeing from certain players, team-wide progressions, anything like that, since Pascal went down and every injury came afterwards, the team has kind of stayed where they are.
1: I think the biggest takeaway, and probably everyone's seen it, I'm not reinventing the wheels. that OG has shown, um, I wouldn't even say it's flashes, though, consistent level of play where you can see that he is a vital option that can handle in the posts, can actually dish out and help people around him and create opportunities for people on, on the team, which is really good to see. I think when they all get back together, there's probably going to be some reconfiguration just because his drives are a problem. It's really hard to stop him from getting to the rim. And as someone who also can shoot, it's really good to see that he has added so much to his game and he's finishing at a different pace than I don't think anyone's ever imagined. He's I believe he's in the top five in the league right now, but um, I would say that's the biggest takeaway. And then also, um just i've liked what i've seen from malachi also actually he's good
0: so digging into last game he scores the raptors first six points we'll talk about the positives of course but uh last game was not a good one for malachi he started off strong but then the shot didn't come around later and particularly the stuff on the inside of the arc right and he had a tough time beating his primary. He wasn't able to find guys on the weak side or the pick and roll. He couldn't find his roller. I'm curious, why don't you think that is a representation of his game as opposed to the positive stuff? And feel free to list them.
1: I think a lot of it has to do with team construction, whereas the Raptors, they don't have many good rollers that are sealing their, sealing their actual defender and forcing decisions and to propel his shooting. Obviously, like if he doesn't shoot well, it's very hard for him to have impact on the court. But he can make decisions. He can make pick-and-roll passes if he has a solid screener. We've seen a bit of that with Coloco, but he isn't the greatest finisher right now. Um, but I would say I've seen moments with him Boucher, him and Thad, where they're making plays together and actually winning their minutes. So I think he could be a vital option as a backup point guard if his shot is hitting. And obviously, he's consistent on that end. But it's... Um, an added element that I probably wasn't expecting going into the season.
0: So if there's, it's game
1: 62 of the season,
0: let's say Malachi has a role on these Raptors. He's in the rotation uh, anywhere from like eight to 16 minutes per game. usual. every once in a while you go north at 20 or something like that. What, what are some plays, the hallmarks of those performances that you'd expect based on what you're seeing now?
1: Question. Um, I would say his biggest plus is just his decision-making and pick and roll situations. He's able, he's one of the few actual players on the team. I think aside from Pascal, a little bit of Fred who can hit a lob. He can actually hit the weak side and actually make plays out of those positions and weaponize his shooting to, to score. I think that's probably the basis of his offense and defensively, he's actually very scrappy. He's tenacious on the ball. He's able to make some plays, Although he isn't the strongest off ball because of his size, and Nick Nurse pulls him a lot because of this, he's still able to have some sort of impact on the team and offers something different than four other guys who are crashing the offensive glass. He's actually able to shoot, and it seemed like the Nets um, saw a bit of that in the first. I do
0: wonder what happens with Flynn going forward as far as when everybody's healthy. Yep. And Flynn has shown, he did it last year for a stretch where playing next to Pascal's point-forward stuff, Flynn getting like a a five, seven-minute stretch of a game where he's a secondary ball handler, but also is perfectly fine to be one of the the rotating people, the other four, as a spot-up shooter, as a guy who, if the ball just swings to the side of the floor, can run like a side pick and roll, whatever else. If there's a, a guard on the other side, that could be something, you know, who knows if Nurse pulls the, you know, these are the tis, the decisions he makes calling out rotations and stuff like that. But if there's a guard who's a little bit underwhelming off ball and the other team is not trying to, I guess, pick out Malachi over and over again, utilize for their own offense, his lack of size. And I guess lack of strength relative to yeah. guys like, you know, Fred, some grittier, smaller guards. Cause Malachi does, even though he's scrappy, There's a diminishing returns as far as that goes. I wonder how many matchups there are where Malachi can not only be like a pick and roll guy, depending on how that progresses, Coloco, Thad. Thad looks like he's going to be a major part of the rotation going forward. He's really found something. But I wonder if there's a couple different options for him to fit in. That's, That's the biggest thing to me is that one of the things that made Malachi so difficult to fit in was like, he has this one thing he has to do at the NBA level. Yep. And if he doesn't get to do that, suddenly there's no other alternative route to minutes. I wonder if he can find a couple different ways to impact the floor, depending on matchup stuff. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. And also you, you kind of hit light on it. Um, probably the second biggest positive out of anyone in the past, Pascal being, our entire team being decimated, to be honest, has been Thad. He's been a, a great post hub and has been able to hit people with with at the elbow. Do you see that being a, a vital part of the offense going forward when Pascal comes back? And do you think he's going to be a vital part of the rotation once everybody's back? I
0: actually think that it's more dependent on guys like Scotty and OG maintaining their momentum. Yeah. Not that Scotty has a bunch right now; he's been struggling which I don't think is, you know, we don't have to do the whole Scotty conversation thing. Scotty is progressing about where he was progressing before. I feel fine saying that. But a guy like OG, who you talked about how great he is getting to the rim that, you know, especially I I just talked to him last night, you know, asking about like, what are you seeing? What changes are you making? And he's saying like, sometimes I have to add different speeds to what I'm doing. Slow down, pacing on drives has become more important to me. And you can see that in some of the combos, especially the footwork. Uh, There's been some good stuff. But Thad, the biggest thing is that Thad is actually kind of offensively a funky fit with Pascal and not in a good way. I think defensively, Thad has definitely done great things next to Pascal. But offensively, he has a tough time just because of how Pascal operates. Thad is like the quick decision guy, whether it's him being a screener, Going to give you the handoff as a passer. And Pascal is one of the biggest factors in the Raptors operating at a slow pace in the half court. Pascal knows he's going to get to his advantage. He's methodical in doing so. And Thad doesn't get to be an important part of these actions. So I think Thad is going to be mostly attached to heavy bench units, these transitional lineups. And of course, every once in a while, we'll see him slide in next to Pascal and that kind of stuff. But if OG. Despite seeing some plateauing on the the playmaking end from him, if OG Scotty Fred those guys get better this year at carrying those transitional bench units, I think that means that the Raptors can start to shave off some minutes from Pascal's minutes per game, and I think that means that Thad gets even more important. If if you get my meaning,
1: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I think um I think he will be a part of the rotation. I'm not sure for the playoffs just because it's really hard to have so many players that aren't able to to keep an advantage he's able to create some in certain situations when he's when pascal's feeding him or other players but i i don't think he's someone that's necessarily going to need to be guarded and in the playoffs it's just such a difficult situation when you have uh a cluster of that many type of players so it's like uh uh he probably would be the odd man out if i were to see it but i'm really happy with the way he's playing and he's offered more than i probably was expecting going into the season and it's probably a big reason why they've been really scrappy even with everybody out
0: this is this is actually what i talked about after he signed his contract was that thad struggled against philly why because you know the thad dribble handoffs the the keepers the pinch post actions they run delay you're not going to have like back cuts available to you in the playoffs teams are going to be more engaged but Thad can help you win a lot of these essential regular season minutes, even if he's a bit disaffected in, in a playoff rotation. Yeah. You don't really have to worry about that because guys like Chris, guys like Otto, guys like Precious, those are the guys who represent like they have the skill sets that are supposed to scale up in the playoffs. Thad is supposed to provide you with a significant floor, and he has done so with all the injuries. He's been, he's been like a top three player. On the Raptors, which speaks a to where they are, who's who's been injured, of course, but he's just been tremendous to help carry them through a lot of these stretches. They would have a much worse record. Um, they could be instead of four and five, it could be you know two and seven. It could be like one and eight or something like that if thad hadn't stepped up. so that's really nice to see. But um we'll see how creative they get with him going forward. We'll see how he mixes and matches with Pascal um, because you thad hit corner threes last year. Thad has not hit anything this year, and that's a uh, that's an important aspect of of playing with uh with Pascal so he's been super interesting with with this hodgepodge of guys, but uh yeah, uh to go back to o g just quickly, the playmaking the driving, I think everyone can sign off on it and say this is a win. We've seen progression, we've seen him do it differently. we've seen him succeed at the old stuff, but the playmaking he's at. You know, in this stretch where Pascal's been out, he's averaging like 2.7 assists, but he's averaging 3.2 turnovers. As a primary, that is, that's poverty. That's terrible. That's not anything you can really muster. Yeah. And and while I do think OG is playing at, he should have all-star consideration, You we do have to be able to acknowledge that his playmaking isn't exactly where he or anybody else would want it to be if they were
1: hoping it scales up. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I think the biggest thing in those situations when he's getting those catch and go situations, he can't pass with his offhand at all currently. And the the breed that he's probably the most comfortable with is hitting the hitting the roller or hitting someone in the dunker spot. And that always isn't available just because A, the Raptors don't have tons of spacing on the court. And and B, he naturally just has two people crashing down on him just because of how how big he is and how strong he is, and how he cr- separates with with strength. So a lot of that, I think Lee is a big reason for those turnovers, but he's getting reps that he probably should have been getting two or three years ago, but the Raptors were just really good and really competitive. So I think it's a a lot of it is um a part of the process, and i I would say I'm probably more optimistic on how that could improve, especially as guys come back simply just because there's going to be more space on the court. And instead of a, a Thad Young three in the corner, you're probably going to have Gary or Fred on on that strong side, which makes it much harder for the defense to actually defend. You
0: you bring up a really great point, is that working in that spacing is, you know, not only to make passes out to the three-point line, but to the dunker spot, as you said. And, and OG gets more catch-and-go stuff. He's always been an above-average since since he came back from appendicitis, I would say, you know, started his third year in the league and, and started making steps as a guy who showed a little bit more, showed really good reads for advantage, where to make pass and stuff like that. But in this, I guess, nine-game stretch, which it doesn't create like, okay, now we know everything, but it gives you a decent look into what's been happening. And the biggest progression is that OG has gotten more clever at shedding his primary defender. That is that is the big win. He's done it going fast, he's done it going slow, and he's done it on a rare occasion using footwork and dribble moves. And more than more often than not, he'll use strength to shed guys. But that diversity to get to dangerous spots on the floor is the biggest thing. We haven't seen a diversity of passes. There's been maybe four or five passes. One a game is not enough, really, when, when he's seeing so much defensive attention, when there's a multitude of reads available to him. Um, I, I want to ask you, what is the what is the read that you most want him to be able to make? Not even necessarily as a primary, but is, is it the skip pass? Is it like the push lob? Like Because he doesn't lob guys. If, <laughs> if OG had the push lob, that would be pretty gnarly, right?
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm i not expecting him to be Luka Doncic and make a skip pass. Hey, man. <laughs> that's not, I don't think that's ever in the future, but if he can make a, a a pass to the lobber or catch somebody on a delay because there are two people coming at him every time. So he's seeing the same type of look. If we have, we have a lot of people who are great cutters, like a Boucher who comes on delays and finishes at the rim. That's a read. That's very easy to make something that um, Boucher is comfortable doing. And I think would lower the turnovers in general, I would say. It's also OG doesn't get to pass to himself. Is It's, it's yeah, no. kind of like a fun little
0: thing. Like they're, they're, fred feels it fred Mm -hmm. pascal felt it last year you know those assist numbers keep going up because he can just throw it to og who has an early seal and like pseudo transition and that's an assist because og is not going to get blocked og is either going to like kiss it off the glass without contention or he's going to dunk it he's a fantastic finisher in in the tight areas and og is not passing to the fantastic finishers more often than not there there are limitations there for sure but uh he wasn't uh he wasn't a super super adventurous passer. Is there is there any anything else you've liked about the Raptors as far as this stretch? And we're probably looking at end of bench guys now.
1: Yeah. Um the the pride and joy of Rexdale. He's he's <laughs> he's been great. Um I he, he got hurt by really initial in the first, I think, three or four games, if I'm mistaken. Delano's been great. Um He's winning in the same way that he always wins, getting in transition, making plays. But I think one of the, and I think you touched on this in one of your articles, um, just how special of a finisher he actually is. Um, it's something that he can probably stretch into other things if he's able to shoot. He can weaponize his shooting if that does happen. Get to the rim and finish, similar to what OG is doing. So I see do you like the, do you like the tucked elbow? <laughs> that that elbow is tucked, dude. He's there. Yeah. So I think he's actually going to be a vital option maybe not this year maybe not next year but he I I am a believer in Delano Benton. I I think there's going to be a point where he's probably not going to be a half court type player or even a point guard for that for that matter. We see it every time that he's at the he's at the nail or met with any sort of resistance the ball gets picked up the team the defense shells in it's much harder to create but if he can become an off-ball player, he's a really great cutter, and he can mm-hmm. shoot – and he's shown that he can shoot a little bit. I won't say he can shoot. But yeah. He's shown that he can shoot a little bit when, when given a set shot. Um, do you think that there's progression with shooting this year? And also do you think if that happens, he can be like a vital off-the-ball player? So I wrote I wrote about this
0: before the season, and I was doing it under the house of like hey, this is what a swing skill is. This, is. this is what a swing skill would represent for a lot of the end-of-bench players on the Raptors. And Delano's, obviously, was shooting. And it was interesting that for a guy like Thad, Thad's swing skill was never shooting. It was always passing. Everyone thinks the swing skill is always shooting. Not necessarily. Different parts of the game open up depending on what you do. Delano is definitely, if, he, if he's a guy who can draw a closeout, That throw dribble that he puts out, he makes pretty good reads when he's downhill. We talked about we don't know if OG can throw the push lob or a skip pass, but and certainly not at the level of Luca, but Delano can do those things. Mm -hmm. Delano is a guy who has a lot in his bag once he's already had the advantage. He's currently battling the NBA as it looks at him and says, we won't we're going to keep you in front of us. And that means we're not going to chase you anywhere. And he's been very inventive in trying to create that chase. He still doesn't get most of the time. If you are a shooter, tuck that elbow, baby. Do whatever in practice. Justin Champagny last year said he was getting up like 300 a day before practice. I'll have to ask Delano once he's available what he's doing for his own shot. But you'd have to imagine that he has it going. He's putting a lot of work in. He would obviously, to me, be an NBA rotation player. If that shot comes around, it is really tough to be a shooter at the NBA level, though, especially when you start out as a guy who wasn't. Luckily, he fits the Raptors vision. He fits into the scheme, the style that they play, which helps lift up a lot of the other things he's even okay at and kind of makes them a bigger benefit. So he has more time with the Raptors than I think most players like him would have on other teams and that means he has a longer development curve to try and take that swing skill and turn it into something meaningful
1: you know yeah no i i completely agree i think the defense probably isn't there yet Wait, well, it's
0: it's really interesting right because he's such a he's a really slick uh off ball player at times like he's making really really high level reads uh you know I wondered if when Nick was talking about Gary's lack of disruption, you know, just pointing to deflection numbers for me, I hate that answer. I don't like that at all because it's one less deflection a game. It It is somewhat meaningful in the stats, but as far as like a coach, um, I'm sure you've we've all seen coaches who say like, oh, yeah, uh, there's there, they might say a guy's defending way better and you look at his deflection or down. I just I don't think it's that meaningful. But what, Ner- what Nick might not be saying is that, oh yeah, when we saw there was a dig available, Gary didn't step in when he was guarding a guy who wasn't a very good shooter or a guy who doesn't shoot well when you put a closeout on him and he was only two steps away from a dig. Why didn't you make the dig? Uh, there was a guy that we like to double who turned his back to you and you had a chance for a blind double. Why didn't you double? Those could be the type of disruptive plays. And Delano, is pretty good at those like slick off-ball reads to apply pressure. It's not toothless when Delano does it. The on-ball stuff, uh for whatever reason, they like to overextend him the same way they like to do with all of their wings. Maybe it's a, you know, personnel problem, maybe it's a an ego problem, but he, he does get cooked at the point of attack yeah. quite often, I'll say that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I th- I wonder if like he has a self awareness that he's a player that needs to get in transition, so he's just naturally more aggressive on the defensive side mm-hmm. of the ball, and and tries to get those digs and actually try to attack at the nail way more often. Just simply just to get out there and actually push the actual defense or the actual um, offense. Um, one question I did have for you: um, you mentioned a bit about Gary Trent. I'm like of the belief that I think he's actually like his approach this season is better than last year. Um, have you been seeing that on from your side, or do you think it you are on the side of Nick Ness where he's having a down season?
0: That's a really great question because this this is about philosophy more than anything, probably. Because I, man, I, I talked about this, and Raptors fans have been upset at me for talking about Gary the way that I do the feast or famine type of conversation, and Gary especially on offense, despite being sick and fighting through stuff, I thought that when Pascal was there, Gary's more sensible approach to his own shot diet was awesome. Yep. He was averaging his, the most points per game of his career. He was taking the least amount of bad shots, still had time and possessions to freewheel to try some pull-ups, but for the most part was using his catch-and-shoot ability as a guy to really punish defenses who collapsed elsewhere. And the Raptors at the start of the season had an offense that could collapse and a player like Pascal who could collapse elsewhere. Gary was shooting 48% on catch and shoot threes on like six attempts per game. You you couldn't draw up a better option on offense. Like that's, that's perfect. And the fact that he scaled back a lot of what he was doing offensively to get to that point was really, really good for what the Raptors were doing. Uh, He has since Pascal gone down fighting through injuries of his own, sickness of his own, has tried to kind of dial up more of that shot creation that was fledgling last year, but successful in in a small sample. The pull-up stuff has not been there. And so approach, I think, has been better when the team has been healthy. Agreed on that. The outcomes have gone to a really tough place because he's way overextended currently. I mean, we, we saw it just last night, 14 points in the... In the first half, on what I guess 12 shots, not anything to write home about, certainly not. But the Raptors needed volume. He ends up scoring what 19 on eight, 18 on 19 shots or something like that. Again, the Raptors need volume, but the off the dribble stuff is the warts are there. We see it game in and game out where Gary isn't being created for. And then defensively, Lewis had the best response to this when he was because he. I was lamenting deflections being publicly tracked, being, you know, kind of how I usually am. And Lewis was actually looking at the statistics saying, yeah, the Raptors this year with Gary on the floor, they have better on offs defensively than they did last year. And they've defended shots better than they did last year, even though they turn teams over less, turn, get teams to turn over the ball less. Like the gambles that Gary had last year were costly. Like, very few players in the NBA were as disastrous as Gary was when they lost out on a gamble, and hardly any were as voluminous in those failed gambles. What is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish when we look at, well, how often does does Gary gamble? What percent do we need him to win? And then what percentage of those steals that turn into something have to be converted upon for us to say, like, this has the green light? I have to assume that Toronto pays attention to all that and that they like a certain trade off, they a certain points per possession, a certain percentile or whatever. But as far as I've seen, Gary has been limited by external factors like injury and, you know, sickness and stuff like that. But his approach this season, when things were going right as much, you know, as he's had a tough time with Nick calling him out and a lot of people paying attention to a lowered field goal and three-point percentage, I agree. I'm I'm in on the approach the same way that you are. That's very long-winded of me.
1: No, um, no I agree. Um, he, like you said, he was obviously the biggest like benefactor of like superstar Pascal, whereas he was punishing teams on every time they made a decision. He was hitting a three. Um, but I think last year, I don't want really to call it fake, but – his key to success and the sort of trajectory that he had over the season was predicated on him hitting pull-up jumpers at the level of a Kevin Durant or Ben or Devin Booker, which is probably something you won't expect over like the duration of his career. I think that version of Gary, they're probably the first what five or six games with Pascal playing really, really well is if he's on the team long-term past the season, is where he will actually have success. He He's a vital, when he's actually hitting a shot, he's a vital member of the team. He creates spacing for everybody around, around each other. And also at the rim, he's hitting some shots now. <laughs> he, he's added a, a bit of a little floater. I believe he's to, I think he's a creator at the rim right now, if I'm not mistaken. But um, he's added a little bit to his game and has cut down some of the pull-ups in the situation where there's actual vital primary and has let guys like OG and Pascal get to the rim and allow him to excel and do what he actually does really well.
0: That's that's a salient point, is that you're you're paying attention to, or we're paying attention to process yeah. instead of outcome. And Gary could just be like Gary is either a great shooter or one of the greatest shooters in the world. Yeah. And the the unique aspect of that is that last year, Gary certainly did profile as one of the great shooters in the world. When you consider volume, difficulty, and then percentage, you crunch all those numbers together. As you said, the, the contemporaries are like book and KD and stuff like that. And it's much more sustainable for Gary to just be a great shooter who can give you some off the dribble pop. And depending on how it's going, that game can start to scale it up. You can start to lean on him a little bit heavier. But that can't be something you go into every game saying we need these types of shots off the dribble. And I think that's borne out this this season for sure. And and you were right, by the way. He's he's shooting 60% from zero to four feet. Uh 60% is nothing to write home about. We're, but Gary is typically a little bit closer to 50 than he is to 60. So that's meaningful. Cool. So. And and right, like, and it's also important to bring up that there's a little bit more intention from Gary to turn it downhill off of some of these opportunities, whether it's, you know, a pick and roll possession. He gets going to the right. He's going to try and get there. If it's a guy who's over pursuing a closeout, he doesn't need to take that one dribble, 18 footer. He's going to try and take a couple dribbles and either get to that nine foot push shot. Maybe he gets all the way to the rim, depending on how the help side comes over. The next progressions for him are obviously once he puts that dribble down, deciding whether there are passes to be made on top of that. That's a realistic progression that I think we can expect to at some point in his career. Um, a, A lot of shooters in the like between 28 to 33 age range, that's when they start to get pretty clever at like the two man actions that are afforded to them with little drop off passes and, you know, little touch actions. And like you give the chase, you reset, it opens up stuff. Um, everybody learns it in like two weeks when they play for Miami, but it's tough. It takes years everywhere else. Uh, what, what else is, uh, so that's, it's been a little bit disappointing with Gary as far as outcome. Uh, what else has been a little bit troubling with you as far as the, the run of play without
1: Pascal? Um, I would say there's one thing like philosophy wise that I'm a bit concerned about. I would just say um, Scotty obviously is battling through injury, and it's had a bit of a tough time. He showed some signs over the last week or so when he was playing. But um, I think they've made a, deci- a concerted decision that they're going to use him as our primary um, our primary defender on most. Oh, know. yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> he's a, they've decided that he's going to be our primary defender on most ball handlers or most primaries on the other team. We saw that with Trey Young. It did not work well. We saw that with Jaden Ivey, it didn't work well. I'm wondering if is that the best place to use him? And obviously his passing on the offensive end is needed, so they put him in that position because off-ball it hasn't worked that well either. Or is it uh, just a pure rep situation where you, they see his length, they see that he can be a disruptor and create turnovers in the future, so give him those reps and allow him to work it out. What are your what are your thoughts
0: on that? Man, see, this is so tough because I don't even think it's necessarily a rep thing. Uh, he's a much better player or not. Well, he's a much better athlete than a guy like Kyle Anderson, but I'll use Kyle Anderson as a facsimile for this is that Kyle Anderson has exceptional technique at the point of attack, really, really exceptional. <laughs> when he plays like a slower player, Suddenly Kyle Anderson is, there isn't a mistake being made in point of attack defense it's all there the routes he takes the cushion he gives the recovery with his length it's all perfect but you couldn't possibly overextend him because he's slower and Scotty is much quicker than Kyle Anderson but he is much slower sliding pivot turning opening the hips whatever it is he is so much slower than most of the people he's asked to guard. And he is imperfect in technique. So are they just trying to hemorrhage these possessions so that that technique catches up really quick? Do they think that he can figure out some way to technique his way into being this type of player? Is this them acquiescing to their young star and saying, hey, you want these possessions as this type of defender? You'll get them. It's tough to say because they, they'd never come out and say, you know, Scotty's not good at the point of attack. We're silly for playing him at the point of attack. But the film, for over a year of basketball now, suggests that he's been quite bad at the point of attack. Every once in a while, he'll have a good game where he's disruptive, where he kind of gums up a lot of stuff. Some of the early offense, that's true. He actually, against Trey, had the in the first Hawks game, had like a, a six-minute stretch of... Maybe, you know, three and a half of those minutes he was kind of switching on to Trey or starting out. And that was the game where Trey had 12 turnovers and Scotty rotating off of him into the switches and stuff caused a lot of turnovers. There's that type of upside. But more than anything, we're seeing the Raptors get beat at the point of attack, put into rotation that they can't recover from, and then having shots made on on their head. Does it make sense to just go to OG? Does it make sense to go to Fred? I'm not certain. And how much of this is because of injury? Some, to be sure. But we've also seen them make these decisions when there are better defenders on the floor. And to me, it's a little disheartening because he's not good at the point of attack. Who knows where he ends up, though? I I don't have a good answer for that, honestly. I basically just spent like two (laughs) minutes adding context.
1: (laughs) It's a bit crazy because... I think, like, ideally he's someone that you'd want to develop off the ball as a disruptive defender who uses his length and athleticism to create plays, and then when he gets the ball, weaponizes passing and getting into transition. He's kind of exactly who you'd want to be digging on when Fred or OG is stopping the defender and creating some resistance at the the nail. I wonder if it's a situation where... The Raptors obviously still like give up tons of corner threes and that's by design, but they've are at a threshold where if they put Scotty at that point, that will probably exponentially increase well he's he's also he doesn't rotate well <laughs> after he gets beat like th- there are schemes
0: that the Raptors run, particularly nexting and, and peel switching, where if you get beat. Make your way above, if it's next thing, above the break to the guy there. If it's, you know, peel switching, go to the corner, rotate to where you need to be. But Scotty has this tendency to just float. And, you know, it's it's one thing to get beat and to be overmatched and get beat by quicker players. But he just, he floats after he gets beat and just hangs out. And then, the and the crazy thing too, right, is that if you float, Certainly, maybe there's some cerebral basketball going on there where you're like, I'm floating in a lane that I don't want him to access. But it's like, if you don't make your rotation, it means somebody else has to make your rotation. And as soon as you ask somebody else to make your rotation, then it's up to you and another person to decide in that moment, like, oh, am I recovering to their guy or are you? And this, these are the types of plays where everybody watches the Raptors. We'll see two guys keep making rotations together because they don't know... In that you can't communicate that in the moment. It's yeah. just action. And when Scotty he breaks the chain, he snaps the the five man on the string ethic of the defense quite often. And if you put him at the point of attack, you're putting him in an increasing amount of situations where he gets to snap that string. And the Raptors definitely they feel that he snaps strings, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and that doesn't mean he can't be good. That doesn't mean. He, he can improve and yeah, all that of kind of stuff. But I agree wholeheartedly with your assessment of why wouldn't this guy be like a terrific off ball defender if he started reading the floor really well from the back end of the defense as a guy who, you know, makes a, gets to those blind doubles that rotates in as a help side guy yep. that, that, Adds length into passing lanes so that skip passes have to be lobbed instead of like those crisp, boom, zip passes across the floor. Like all those benefits you get from it, rather than saying this six foot nine, six foot 10 guy, go guard De'Aaron Fox. It, it just seems, you know, senseless to me, I suppose. Uh, any other, or do you have any other thoughts on that before we?
1: Um, I would say in general, probably the thought process is like him figuring out. That off ball disruptor role is will lead to more threes, which which is probably a hard trade-off to really allow a player to figure out. Whereas if he's at the point of attack, he has tons of help and tons of good defenders that are going to dig and actually help him in create rotations, and actual defenders who are going to do the peel switch properly. So, <laughs> I'm assuming that's that's the thought process, but I, I don't think I agree with the approach.
0: Clean up somebody's mess versus asking Scotty to clean up messes. I, I, I've i never considered that before. But as somebody who has talked constantly about Pascal's very um, prolific ability to problem solve on the defensive end, I suppose that does make a good deal of sense. Uh, either way, cross my fingers that Scotty develops both as an incredible on-ball defender and as a, an off-ball guy too. Um, As far as anything else you liked, you didn't like before we leave the Raptors and go to the, the Jason Tatum conversation, obviously uh, <laughs> what uh, is there anything else you want to talk about?
1: Um, prayers to everybody that's injured, please come back. I would like to see good basketball again.
0: Let's... Yeah. And just uh, we'll talk about Jeff Doughton on another episode. I feel I feel the Jeff Doughton wave is not has not dissipated. I feel it's surging. So we'll we'll do the Jeff Doughton conversation at another time. Okay. So everybody, a part of the appeal of this podcast is the the league wide conversations that we're supposed to have because Trey watches a lot of basketball and he gets to watch some basketball that I don't because I'm locked in on the Raptors. So we get the outside view from him on the Raptors as a guy who watches every Raptors game, and we get. The outside view on a lot of the other stuff. Trey and I have had, I guess, longstanding, would we say? Yeah. Is it, does it qualify as long-standing? We've had beef, dude. Yeah, it's been a feud. Yeah, a, an ongoing feud. About Jason Tatum winning an MVP this year. Now, <laughs> you could actually probably go find a tweet from me in either Jason's first or second year where I said, there's no way he doesn't end up getting like top five MVP votes. Now, that does not mean he's going to win. This is, this is the point of contention you see. Trey says Tatum is gonna win MVP. I say he's not gonna win MVP and I won't embarrass myself here, <laughs> but I said it in pretty certain terms when we were, <laughs> when we were discussing it. Uh, Trey, uh, if you wanna give me your point of view, and uh, if you remember anything I said, uh, feel free to embarrass me further. Because uh, if there's if there's a winning side of this conversation, I I would think it's probably you at this point in time.
1: Yeah, it's looking really good for me. I remember we <laughs> had this conversation and you gave a, an emphatic no. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of the concerns that we had, where you had in the initial conversation, is that Jason Tatum hasn't proven that he's a good enough two point scorer to either a have people collapse on him where he can make easier passes or, and B he is in um, a very advanced passer. We saw that basically in the final series where um, they basically decided that they were going to let Grant Williams, Payne Pritchard shoot every single time. And he wasn't able to create any other secondary type of pass where he could find um, Al Horford or find someone in the dunker spot or find somebody on a delay to actually score. And it bottled their offense down him and him and Jalen Brown had tons of turnovers, but that was last season. That was last season. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's All right. But this year, Rob Will's been hurt. They're running a five out offense where they have multiple ball handlers who can both pass and shoot. They've gotten Malcolm Brogdon who's helped with some of the rim pressure issues. And Jason Tatum is able to thrive as a four with more space. He's scoring more in at the rim. He's getting to the rim more often, and he's. <laughs> do you
0: do you think that this will be affected by Rob Williams' return?
1: Possibly. Prayers Possibly.
0: up, bro. Prayers up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, like we obviously, like with Rob Will, you're getting their defense hasn't been that great. Their, their defense will significantly get better if he is healthy and able to actually offer some resistance out of the rim. Because right now, Al Horford is probably more of a positional defender than you would say like emphatic shot blocker. But what I will say from Tatum, like he's far more deliberate in what he actually is doing this season compared to last season. He's actively trying to get to the rim and and make better plays. And you see Boston's offense is significantly better than it was a, a year ago. I think they have the best roster in the NBA. I think they're going to have the most wins in the NBA. I did say this before the season started. You did. I <laughs> did say is, this. And it is holding true. So I think for those reasons, he's going to win the MVP. So this was all, this is good
0: analysis on your behalf. I have one crumb. Is the, the seven assist sticking point. But that is that is an absolute crumb. You got the whole cake at this point. Uh, The truth of the matter is, uh, as you said, I I thought Tatum made rote decisions as a playmaker, was too reliant on the pull-up. And this season, we've seen, man, he's not even shooting the best. Like, it's not, I thought, man, I'm rambling at this point. But like, (laughs) damn, I I thought Tatum, if he had like this absurd start to the season, it would be a hot pull-up streak. And when I started watching some games back, and I think I've seen four Celtics games, not a ton, but I've also looked into the numbers, and to see, to my dismay, that the pull-ups from three are not dropping and he's still this guy. Oh my God, <laughs> I started to worry. I looked I looked back at the catalog of, uh, you know, uh, incendiary incendiary messages I sent you, and I thought this might be trouble. And so it's been very interesting to see Tatum, as you said, be more deliberate as a two-point scorer. And if you could just kind of give me an example of a possession we may have seen last year that would have a less than desirable outcome and then how that might have changed for this season.
1: Okay. Uh, I'll talk about the finals. Everyone watched that. Where if Tatum were to get the ball at the three-point line um, and makes a deliberate drive, once he gets to the nail and he, you see Draymond has already probably is making a dig or is pre-rotated to show that, Hey, we're here at the rim. That's going to turn into a turnaround pull-up contested too. Whereas now he's, he's probing a lot more and getting deeper into to the pain where it leads to a a pass, which is why Jalen Brown's playing really well, or he's going to try to get to the rim and actually score and use his size and use his length to actually score. So you're seeing a, a lot more opportunities for the offense in general and a big reason why the, their team in as an offensive unit is probably one of the best in the league. My question for you is, is this sustainable?
0: So, I mean, anytime people succeed at two-point scoring, that to me just, that screams sustainable. And especially if it's not like, you know, 16 to 21-foot jump shots, I'm like, damn. If you're getting below the free throw line all the time for looks and and hitting them, I just, as somebody who has watched the Raptors for a long time, watched a lot of basketball, most people who watch a lot of basketball know that, you know, there are some players who are really special playmakers from the exterior. They make like these great reads where they're looking off players and the ball's going elsewhere. They manipulate with their eyes and they can, they like, they have really great passing and they can bend the ball a lot of different ways a lot of different angles and and release points. It still does not beat drawing the bottom guy like the low man and dumping off. It still doesn't beat getting really deep, collapsing the guy from the the strong side and just one pass away to the corner, like these types of passes. It breaks my heart to see Jason Tatum doing this <laughs> because it does look sustainable dude. I don't know about I don't know about 30 a game. It's it's tough to have that stamina all season. But I hate to say it looks sustainable. My great hope is that Jokic and Giannis both and <laughs> Embiid but there's injuries going around. My great hope for this season is obviously those guys represent a higher ceiling still. I think you'd still agree with that than Tatum. I agree with that. Yeah. Your whole crux was you were like, Tatum is the Iron Man and he's fantastic. That's yeah. why he's going to win. My great hope is that, you know, one of those guys finds the Iron Man in them as well. And I need it because if that doesn't happen, Tatum might take that MVP, man. And that's bad news for me, you know?
1: Yeah. Oh, I think Luca oh. might be your your best hope if you were to dude. to pray for anybody. Like Dallas is okay; he's gonna play a lot of games, and like the usage is gonna be there. I don't think Giannis or the Bucks are interested in trying to help him win an MVP, so I think he's gonna sit out games for the for the most part. I geez,
0: no, <laughs> ebony Ep, and ivory, dude. We're up against it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so that's that's the Tatum conversation. Uh I, I got very close to eating crow, but I, I get to do the, the comedic aspect currently. If Tatum actually wins, I might have to full on eat like a pie <laughs> on camera or something like that. It's looking bad for me. Okay, kings, kangs, light the oh, beam
1: tray. Uh, sure is... Okay. So for years, obviously no everyone oh, it's actually turning purple. That's that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Um yeah. the kings have, been the laughing stock of the league. Um last year they made a really contentious trade. one that I was kind of on the fence with as well when they traded Sabonis for Halliburton. Um
0: you, you came more, out
1: you came out pro, didn't you? I was pro at the at the time, but I thought about it in in the summer and you, just, you saw like
0: Halliburton hit eight threes in a game and you folded. I think that's what <laughs> happened.
1: Probably but it's yeah. just like I still think they're going to hit a point sort of like the Bulls where they made a drastic move to not actually reach any level of contention. (laughs) But it's fun right now. The Kings are winning. Um, What I really like about their team is, like, one, they're probably the most fun offense to actually watch. They have several ball handlers, tons of guys who can pass and shoot. Sabonis has actually probably opened up Fox as an off-ball player that no one has actually seen before where he's able to catch the ball, um, get the nail. Fox is sprinting past whoever is because he's one of the fastest players in the league, and he's finding them and getting probably two to three easy buckets that he wasn't getting last year next to to Halliburton. But um, the Kings are just fun. To, I, I, there's nothing really else to add. The Kings are fun, and it's really good to see a team that's probably been one of as a kid. They were probably one of like the staple teams in the league. Like, come mm-hmm. back and actually look competent again. So I think it's the most fun story. They also have
0: an awesome fan base. And I love like that was, that was part of why the Raptors was cool that before it, everything was really corporatized. The fandom inside the arena, I should say was that the Raptors were, despite having a terrible team had great numbers as far as like selling tickets and had still like very staunch support. The Kings also fit into that golden state fit into that. And the Kings, man, they fit so firmly into the ideal of just like get guys who can hoop. You know, you know what I mean. And yeah. not in not in the Hooper archetype, but just like get guys who can do stuff. Kavon, like I almost no, say <laughs> I just... almost called him Kavon Herder. He's been playing like, <laughs> him. He's been playing uh, like him. Kevin. Kevin Herder, <laughs> Malik Monk, Fox Sabonis, like Keegan Murray. All these guys. It's just like pass, shoot, dribble. And Sabonis as like this hub who not only is he making great decisions, not only does he allow for a ton of off ball actions, but he also has one of the most interesting aesthetics for dribble handoffs as he does the leave pass, the drop pass instead, which not a lot of big men have the confidence for. But Sabonis knows he can set a good enough screen. He has a good enough read on the defender coming towards him. And he like, he'll throw the ball behind himself instead of doing a handoff. That's a, that's a super fun for anybody who like knows about like the heel in soccer or the drop pass in hockey or all that kind of stuff. It's cool to see the cross sport comparisons and Sabonis in, in those handoff situations get allows for that. There's a ton of interesting stuff happening and, and the sequencing of plays End of the ball handler responsibilities has created just like a, a fantastic watch. We know many Kings fans. I'm very happy for them. I'm still waiting, however. D'Aaron, my brother, you're so rich. Please just <laughs> give these kids who bought your NFTs their money back, and you'll have my full-throated support. My full-hearted support, dude. I just I just need that to happen. I'm no, so I'm I, so chapped over that, dude.
1: <laughs> I hope they made the playoffs and Although he's an NFT scammer, um, Darren Fox is <laughs> is built for the playoffs. He's, he really is. There's not many players, maybe SGA and a couple others, who can get to the rim as well as he can. And probably people are probably seeing it now because the Kings are actually successful. Over the last few years, he's been one of the better mid-range shooters in mm-hmm. the league. So he creates a really difficult situation for the defense in a playoff scenario where you have your shell defense. He's still getting through the defense and scoring just because of his speed. And if you decide to um, go under on him, he's going to hit uh, a mid-range jumper and create several other scenarios where if you go onto him, he's going to blow past you. If you go underneath him, he can either A, find somebody else, or B, hit the shot himself. So they're not good on defense, but they're very (laughs) fun to watch. And I hope they make the playoffs because it would be a great story. For the league in general, just seeing a team that actually wanted to, to go for it. Not many teams are make a trade that say, Hey, I just want to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I think it would be really good for the league that they 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 do. So uh like the beam baby. I, I always want teams who who
0: like chase middle yeah. to get middle. Yeah. Like you know what? Be rewarded for trying to rise above the doldrums that other teams are very happy to occupy for different reasons. I love that. And, and as you say, De'Aaron is a guy who is comfortable at the rim, comfortable in the short mid-range, and comfortable in the long mid-range. It's kind of like that Bradley Beal thing, right? Yeah. Where once you get in a playoff context and teams, they finally go past the regular season scouting report and they start looking for ways to make you uncomfortable. Guys like that, and despite Beale not playing on good enough teams for him to really pop off, he always had the game. Like if Beale had been a guy who played next to Braun or KD or on one of those teams, you would have seen how like indomitable and meant to just like soldier through so many different aspects of defense that game is. And De'Aaron, I think, is the term people use is built for war. And his game very much is. It's sure. not the perfect picture of efficiency and decision making that fuels a lot of the success in regular seasons against like the base packages. But it's a game where you know like there isn't really a solve for it in in the game plan. That's yeah. that's the coolest aspect of it to me. Yeah. But yeah, pay pay these kids back, dude. They just <laughs> come on, dog. Please. I...
1: <laughs> do you, a. Do you think this is? Do you think they actually can make the playoffs? And B, if they do. Can they play defense enough to win a round?
0: So I think they can make the playoffs. And I think as soon as they do, our man on the scene as Fandi Arberhaney will be flying down Sacramento for a mini documentary. <laughs> that I'm I'm very maybe he'll even do it mid season. I'm very excited to watch it. S. But do I think they can win a round? No. I
1: I don't see it. Do you see that? No, I'm not even sure they're going to make the playoffs. <laughs> but it's just because they've hit probably – they've probably hit best-case scenario for probably majority of the team. Kevin Herters probably look around, like, friends to sub-all-star level where he's hitting shots off the dribble. He's making offhand passes, skip passes to the other side. I'm not saying Caban isn't nice, but it, it would be um, really – surprising if they keep up this level of offense. I think they probably still will be like a top 5 offense, but I don't think they're going to be one of the bet- better ones of all time.
0: He was uh Kevin Herder was kind of this guy. Yeah.
1: yeah I'm really not, I'm not
0: crazy for thinking that, right? Like Yeah. Well, this I've talked about him as this type of maybe not this type of guy, but the jump is certainly conceivable from where he was to where he is now. As far as like maintaining it, I mean, sure, why not? but he's probably also multiplicative or a compounding type of player that if other guys start to fall off, a little bit of his effectiveness kind of wanes too. So it, this might be a perfect storm and it, it more than likely is. The real meat is when things don't break right for them and how resilient that offense is to the slump of the season. That that will be cool to see. Same with Jason Tatum. We'll see, man. <laughs> um, you also want to talk about The Pacers and the Jazz as surprising teams, and they're both above 500. Which I don't know if you had polled 80,000 people before the season (laughs) started, uh, and said that was going to be the case. I bet like 200 people out of 80,000 say, Sure, I could see it,
1: it's been nuts. No, that might be that might be more than I would expect (laughs) if you're gonna guess. If you're going to pull anyone, say who are going to be the bottom five teams, both of them would have been in that section. Probably, I would yeah. say Because you would assume that the Pacers would have made that Lakers trade. I think the Lakers assumed that the Pacers are going to make that Dude, trade. Miles Turner <laughs> went on a podcast yeah. and sold the idea of the trade. <laughs>
0: Literally, yeah. <laughs> the Pacers expected to be so unprecedentedly bad that they were unprecedented in like. I don't did did Kevin Pritchard say like Miles? Can you do this me. podcast? You know how like movie yeah. stars they do their you know their circuit of like advertising or marketing. Did is that what they asked for Miles? Like go see if you can conv- convince the Lakers. We know we know Rob listens to this podcast. Like yeah, and yet
1: very ten and seven. very valid points. Like. <laughs> But uh, I'll start with the Pacers. With with the Pacers, um, a lot of unexpected things happen. A Miles Turner is having the best season of his career. He's still a force defensively. He's added more uh, on the offensive side, probably just because he's not with Sabonis. He can put the ball on the floor way better than I probably, I think anyone expected. Um, Buddy Heal. as except, a, except for James Boo. Except for James, he was he was spinning on that. Um, Buddy Heald has kind of been a similar player to Kevin Herter where they can be a connected passer and make plays, but also has enough shooting gravity that warrants um, just natural good offense being around them generally. And then um, our Canadian son, um, Ben Mathurin, has probably been, if he's not the rookie of the year, probably number two, whereas... Um, He's more athletic than I thought he was. He gets to the rim way more at Arizona. You saw that he was more of an, uh, a a spot up guy, a guy who's taking two dribble pull ups, getting hitting shots like that. But he's actually getting to the rim and forcing defenses to make decisions. And then one of my favorite players in the league, and the reason why I was a bit shaky on the Kings trade, Tyrese Halliburton. He's been the he's been a, a star, to be honest. He is one of the best shooters in the world that that's pretty sustainable. That's been like that his entire career so far. He creates passes in angles that no one else is even thinking about. Probably like him, Lamelo, Luca, where they, where they can have they have the length and actually have the vision and creativity to make those type of passes. So when those when they actually get out in transition, they have so many different options in terms of what they can do because they have a guy like Buddy. They have um, a guy who actually can get to the rim and make plays like, like Matherin where they're giving teams a lot of trouble just simply because they have several good players. They may not have a superstar, but they have several good players. They play together and they've been really good Um, in terms of the, the pacers. Are you surprised? I'm sure you are surprised. And also um, did you think Matherin could be this type of player in his first season?
0: So, very surprised, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I did that outside looking in with Caitlin Cooper, who for the record is the best beat reporter in the world. Her st- if anybody is interested in the Pacers, just follow Caitlin Cooper. She'll have the best ex- explanation of what's going on with that team. Uh, Matherin, though, he, as you said, more athletic than you would think. He's athletic in the sense of like Damian Lillard, and Bradley Beal and Terrence Mann where it's like they clearly lack that high high level explosiveness yeah. that and and that f- play finishing like pop that we typically associate lazily as a collective we lazily associate like that's what elite athleticism is that's why DeMar DeRozan despite being like really slow foot speed and like not that quick Because of his one foot jump that kind of made everyone like gasp out loud, it was like this guy's a great athlete. Matherin is power and balance and like quick decision making. And shooting on top of that just means he's like this tremendous cutter, catch and go guy. And in an open, spaced out offense, you know, five out Miles Turner, Healed Halliburton, this is a guy who is feasting. You know, we've re- and Rick Carlisle has also, to his credit, the way that they use Matherin is very intentional and very complimentary to his skills. Yeah. But way more credit to Matherin for being a guy who's making the right ideas and finishing like everything, everywhere yeah. on the floor, <laughs> all the time. Just yeah. so few mistakes are made. The I I did not expect him to be this good. Like the first four years of his career. Yeah. he's coming off the bench for like twenty plus a game, dude. It's it's kinda nuts. You know, this it's and everything is there that you'd want offensively. It, it blows my mind a little bit to see him do that well.
1: Yeah. And he's like a part of this like really like cool collection of players where um I call like the Norman Powell role where yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're um these explosive off ball play finishers. There's like Shaden Sharp, Norman Powell, those guys who can come off a screen, hit shots, who can put the ball on the floor and also have power and explosiveness to actually finish at the rim, and you don't ask them to do anything else. Those type of guys are I've noticed have been really successful in those type of roles and that can get points in bunches just simply by playing to their strengths and having a ball handler like a Tyrese or having a Dame who's going to draw lots of pressure and allow those guys just to maintain the advantages that the team creates.
0: That's also, you brought up Tyrese and how special his reads are on offense. Uh, there's obviously, Caitlin did, and Tyrese even commented on this piece himself, saying he loved it. But Caitlin Cooper did a piece on Tyrese's jump passing, and that's awesome. I love that. But Tyrese beat the Raptors' defense over and over again without jump passing, really. And it was kind of that Luca, I would say, is of all the stars in the NBA, the guy who is most easily undone what the Raptors tried to do defensively. Yeah, He sees a couple possessions where he's he sees, okay, this is where you're trying to attack from. At, at some point in the game, it gets to the point where he doesn't even really need to see what they're going to do a couple possessions. He has live reads of the defense being thrown at him. He sees the, where they pre-rotate from. He starts seeing if he can bait that pre-rotation into somewhere it's not supposed to be. He starts playing around with how the defense is positioned on the floor. And Hal Burton, in his one game against the Raptors so far, did a pretty good damn job of being, you know, a facsimile of Luka in baiting guys from different areas on the court. And there's a reason why, you know, he was like north of plus 25. He had over 15 assists, I believe, and just completely undid a Raptors defense that didn't even necessarily have to scramble that often. Mm -hmm. They were just trying to set up for if a breakdown came, and he created a breakdown out of that. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you you find your destiny on the route to try and escape it. And that's he's that type of decision maker on offense. He's like, the moment you start making decisions of defense, he'll find where the mistake is. Because defense is full of mistakes because you can't touch the offensive players and you start from behind the eight ball. And he's just so damn good at finding where the mistake is or where the weakness is. And against the Raptors, he did that. I haven't seen so much of his game that I can say he's done that against every other team, but I've seen two or three other games where I'm like, "Damn, this is a guy who does this often enough to warrant like an elite playmaker status." It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Also, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, with the the Jazz, a little bit of what I've seen from them, um, less fun than the Pacers, but what I've what I've seen with them is that. Will Hardy's created like such a creative offense where they're u- utilizing like the passing and creativity that Mike Conley has, and is getting guys into spots and creating switches where they're they're running sets to get Laurie Markkinen a, a actual small on him, utilizing his strength, knowing that he isn't the strongest guy, and he has the skill and 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 strength in those situations to actually create, and he's scoring at a level that. Um, our, our Bulls friend Makai would probably weep for, like, three <laughs> years ago. <laughs> He's looking like an all-star, which is crazy to see. Like, with the Jazz, you, you assume that, like, if they had some positive, it was going to be young guys like Sexton, THT, guys like that who are going to, um, like, have those flash moments and they're going to be competitive and scrappy. But they're actually, like, fairly good. They have a lot of pull-up scoring with, with Clarkson, Beasley, those type of guys, and they're staying in games.
0: Snapback just- king, dude, the snapback <laughs> king, Kelly O. He's yeah, uh, he's been sneak like the same way that Chris Boucher is sneakily yeah. one of the best bench players in the league. Kelly O. It's the same thing. We we talked about how with like the guards, we we're talking about guards uh, using them as the example, but Kelly O. is the guy who it's like he can he can put the ball down he can make a read as a passer when the ball is down and he can shoot if he doesn't want to put the ball down that is all paramount to succeeding at the nba level but on top of that and maybe like the the coolest aspect of the jazz during the summer raptors fans will remember nick well nick nurse at a bunch of different points has said if you get the rebound we let you take it up and that and the raptors have a lot of size in the middle of their lineups and they they seek out mismatches that way but the jazz It's they might like the matchup that Markinen has and recognize like he has he's quicker than the five marking him or something like that, right? They might intentionally have a guy like Jared Vanderbilt bring the ball up the floor so that the other big who would otherwise be in help is stepping up the floor a little bit. And that means that like Markinon can just make these rapid basket cuts against bigs and stuff like that. That's a small thing. But that's a really fun and intentional way to use your offensive players that a lot of teams don't necessarily do. And it's the type of like meat-on-the-bone decision-making that early offense is typically missing. And the Jazz are taking all the, you know, they're not leaving any meat-on-the-bone anywhere. They're just maximizing exactly what they intend to do. As you said, it's um, a very unique way to run offense in the NBA. I don't know how long it sticks for. I don't know if teams get a little bit more wise to it. But for now, it's uh, singular, it's unique,
1: and it's working really well. It's cool. Yeah, I agree. Of those two teams that we were talking about, if one of them were to actually maintain this and stay in the playoffs, who would you think it would be? Man, I look at the East. I
0: see Miami 8-11, and 11, Chicago 8-10, and 10, Brooklyn 9-10. and 10. Philly, Toronto, the Knicks are all 9-9. and It looks very tough for Indy to, like, hang there and make it work. And similarly, in the West, it's like Golden State, Mavs, Portland, Mini, Memphis, you know, Clippers, we'll see, man. The Kings behind Utah. (sighs) Can I say neither? (laughs) Like... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, dude. There's like one or two of these teams that I listed behind each of them is not going to cut it. Something's (laughs) going to happen in their season, injuries, uh, regression, whatever, just uh, progression from other teams that they can't catch up, lost advantages. That's going to happen, of course. But there's too many good teams behind both of them that I'm going to firmly say, I don't think either of them have the juice. I don't know if we have like a large swath of uh utah or indiana fans listening uh
1: my apologies to all seven of you i assume you know um if if i were to pick i i'm gonna say the pacers okay i'm I'm an enthusiast what's that what's the biggest motivator for you to choose the pacers
0: is it like you trust Hal burton more than you do the collective onslaught of the of the jazz or or what's the motivation there
1: A, I think their ceiling is just naturally higher just because with Miles Turner, they're going to have a level of defense and and rim deterrence that will keep you in a lot of games and will muck up subgames. And Halliburton is one of, like I said, one of the best shooters in the league. And with that and added usage that he's been getting since he's left the Kings. Those reads and those open shots that he's creating are going to still be there. So I don't think that's going to go down. I'm like, will Ben Mathern look like Michael Jordan off the bench all season? I don't I don't think so. <laughs> but I, if I were to say, if either team were to maintain, I would say it's the Pacers just simply because their veterans fit a lot better into like the star collective that Halliburton actually is. And nice. I think their defense might be okay enough
0: that that makes sense uh there's an easy fix here if they want to just like win a championship stop bringing michael jordan off the bench and just start (laughs) playing him 38 minutes a game from the starting lineup you know um that 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 i think about does it is there any parting shots you want to give on the nba wide or the raptors before we get out of here um Beam team, i uh, kings forever. That's that's all <laughs> <have> you
1: say. <laughs> Damn, good? Happy went,
0: yeah, the the mic went purple after you said that. I don't know if you <laughs> timed that purposefully or what was going on with that. But listener, thanks for tuning in. Viewer, uh, if you're on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, like the video. Uh, if you like Raptor stuff, go to RaptorsRepublic.com and subscribe. There's actually a deal, a Black Friday deal on currently. So. Uh, if you want all of my written work, Lewis's written work, Aiden's written work, all that kind of stuff, uh, get on over there. Do the subscription thing. But uh, yeah, that's it for myself, uh, Trey's co-host, and uh, Trevon Heath himself, the main host. Uh, Trey, uh, any, anything you want to say to the listener?
1: Um, uh, I will say, from the first episode, I've gotten a lot of nice things. I really appreciate that. A couple of people have reached out. Um, hoping the this continues to be a really good thing and I'm looking forward to uh, watching more basketball and discussing um, with my friend.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah. And yeah,
1: people keep, keep
0: unloading your compliments onto Trey. (laughs) He messages me privately and says how much he likes it. So yeah, yeah. Keep doing so. Anyway, (laughs) that's it for us. Uh, Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.